So again, uh, good morning, everyone. And I'd like to continue uh, in the session this morning, again, recognizing that it's uh, afternoon for many people uh, and perhaps evening for some, if there are people uh, in Europe or the Middle East or whatever. So I want to continue with the theme that I have been exploring the last two weeks, which I've called Deepening Daily Life Practice in the Pandemic. And that's coming from an understanding that crises are also opportunities, that challenges or difficulties can also bring gifts. And for many of us, the time of the pandemic may open up more time. We're not commuting. Some of us may not be working. We may have more time to devote to formal practice. For others of us, there may be more challenges, more difficult experiences, and there may be a call to bring our practice to work with difficult emotions, difficult situations, and so forth. Other, others of us may be more called to uh, action in terms of some of our interlocking crises, and we may want to bring our practice into those activities, those endeavors. So the question that I like to ask is, where are you called at this time in terms of your practice? In the first session, I looked at broadly at three areas of practice. Uh, this was two weeks ago. I looked to how we might deepen our practice in terms first of formal practice. And I talked about how for some of us it might be to uh, really establish, perhaps freshly or again, a regular formal practice. Some of us may extend the formal practice. Some of us may find ways to have uh, short periods of formal practice. A wonderful technique is to find little five or ten minute periods where you come back to center, come back to being present. Uh, I also talked about informal practice and how this can be an edge for many of us, bringing more awareness, more insight, more of the teachings into our various activities uh, and finding ways to bring our practice into speaking, into walking, into cooking, into, into being with others and so forth. And I also talked about how we might be wanting to bring practice more deeply uh, as I mentioned earlier, into our work, into our service, into our activism. And in all of these, I was giving a number of different ways to deepen practice and asking each of us to see what resonates. Gave a lot of different possibilities, a lot of different techniques, a lot of different approaches, and invited us to see what is really what calls me what's alive, what has energy for my own practice. Uh, I was thinking about a teacher I had uh, named uh, John Eisman, who is, uh, I, would, I would say, a master therapist. He was one of the trainers in the uh, several-year training that I took once in body-based psychotherapy, uh, the Hakomi approach. And John is a wonderful trainer, has developed some of his own systems. But what I remember was that he said in every moment, if we listen carefully, there is what he called an organic impulse. There is, as it were, an authentic way that our being moves towards some intention. And our task is, or our practice, is in large part to be able to listen, to be quiet enough so, we, what we, so that we hear what has life for us. That's a lot of what our practice is about. That's a lot of what having this uh, sense of uh, what calls me, 
is a lot of what it's about. And indeed, having a sense of what is alive, what's calling me, what comes next in my practice is such a central part of practice. And, we can, and it's, it's a lot of it's about careful listening. And then last time I went into more depth about three areas which are particularly central for deepening our practice. I talked first of all about the importance and uh, centrality, foundational aspect of mindfulness of the body. And we looked at various ways that we can bring uh, more mindfulness of the body. So central to being present in our activities, so central to being active, actively aware during listening and speaking, even right now, can it help, for example, to be aware of each of our bodies, to be aware of your body as you listen to me speaking? Can I, as I'm speaking, also have presence to be aware of my body so that my teaching, my speaking is coming more, we might say, out of my whole being rather than being a prepared script or something like that. Right? And that's, you know, that's something I've been intending for a long time. I think I've mentioned, I mentioned from time to time that my, uh, one of my core mentors, John Travis, very much a teacher of the body, and when I was first starting to do more of this teaching, uh, probably about, about 20 years ago, he said, here's what you do for your teaching. Here's my suggestion. Do your preparation. And then when you're ready to teach, ground in your body, center in your heart, and let your thoughts self-organize. So that's, that's an interesting way to, to teach or to do any public speaking, right? Let your thoughts self-organize, ground in your body, but it, it changes things. And so we, we focused on that mindfulness of the body. It's something we can practice with right now. I can practice with that right now. And then we also looked at uh, practicing by noticing and working with reactivity. Again, I use the word reactivity as a translation of dukkha. So this is right at the heart of 2,600 years of Buddhist teaching. How do we notice when we grasp after something or push away something in some compulsive or uh, fairly automatic way? How can we track that and be skillful when reactivity occurs, whether it's in our own minds and in interaction with someone else and our listening to the news and so forth. So the aim here is not simply to be passive in some way at all, but it's rather how can I be skillful in responding to the situations that lead me to reactivity? So I might be, for example, very reactive about the news. If I work with that reactivity, um, I might be inspired to act. I think of my colleague Wes Nisker's phrase, which he's had for a long time, if you don't like the news, go out and make some of your own. Right? Okay, so there you go. So, but, but the, the guidance is to do that skillfully, uh, increasingly non-reactively. I'm going to make some references during this talk to the life of John Lewis, the Congress person who, who just died, whose funeral is actually tomorrow. And it's coming out of Ebenezer Baptist Church in uh, Atlanta, which was the church of... Uh, uh, Reverend Dr. King and his father, who were, who were pastors there, ministers there. And I think it's going to be live streamed from the church, if you want to hear that, uh, want to hear that uh, funeral. I think it's at 8 a.m. tomorrow. You can, I think you go on the Ebenezer Church website. So 
I know for John Lewis and that whole approach uh, to social change, the motive was to as much as possible come out of love, which required a tremendous attention to transforming reactivity. You know, King and others often said that right at the center of our movement is the skillful work with, with anger, for example. How do we work with anger and transform it so that they can come, so that they or we can come out of non-reactivity, love, kindness, wisdom, and so forth. Not easy, but this was at the center of John Lewis's, John Lewis's life. And then thirdly, I also focus some on working with setting intentions and uh, pausing and that practice uh, that we can use during the day of pausing just for a minute and setting the intention. Very, very central to making daily life practice come alive. Can I pause? Can I have some breaks during the day and then come back to what my intention is, how I want to go forward. It might be the intention to be aware. It might be the intention in terms of a discussion to have more empathy or more connection or more authenticity. So this is really something we can do actually in the middle of discussions. Some of you know the technique uh, developed by Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, the Vietnamese teacher, to bring a mindfulness bell into group settings so that there are people, and I, I've seen this in action many, many, many times, and someone is assigned to ring the bell, and they in a meeting, things might be getting a little bit heated, and then right at that moment, someone rings a bell. People stop for a minute. They come back to their bodies. They come back to being present. They set their intentions, and very often, the tension shifts just by those pauses, just by that setting of intention. People say, oh, do I really want to go that way? And in those contexts, people often say no. And it's not even articulated, it just happens. So what I want to do is to go further today with two themes, and I might go uh, into a third if I have time. And if not, I'll deal with it in uh, three weeks. And those, uh, the first topic is going further into working with intention. And the second is to bringing mindfulness and awareness into activities during the day. So I want to focus on those two things, and we'll do an exercise or two as well. So the first theme, going more deeply with working with intention, very, very central in many ways. And I thought I'd tell a story from the Dalai Lama who really stresses the centrality of intention. And he said, he was asked once, how do you deal with all the criticisms that come at you? And he said, you know, I get a lot of criticism. You know, he uh, gets it from the Chinese. They call me uh, uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing or a counter-revolutionary. I get it from maybe some of the young people who want things to move more quickly in, the, in terms of the Tibetan situation. He said, when I hear such criticisms, I look carefully at my intentions. If my intentions are good, and I know my intentions clearly as good, then ultimately I don't care about the criticisms. It's coming back to those intentions. Of course, one wants to listen to others, but he comes back to what's deeper there, the deeper intention. Someone else asked him, how do you work with fear? And he said, I look carefully at my intentions. If I look carefully at my intentions and my intentions are good, I am not afraid. Powerful, right? Interesting, right? That, that centrality of intentions. And this is such a vital part of our practice. 
to keep coming back to our intentions. Sometimes I like to think about what our practice is about as having three components. We try to be mindful of what's happening in our mind, our body, with others externally. We try to be aware. And then on the basis of that awareness, we try to set intentions that express our best wisdom and our best compassion, our good hearts. And then thirdly, we act as skillfully as possible. That's a summary of our practice. Now that's all we do moment after moment after moment. And so we want to be able to work skillfully with intention. And in fact, uh, in working with intention was right at the center of the traditional teachings of the Buddha. Many of you know that he understood the whole complicated, sometimes complicated uh, teaching about karma or kama. He said he explained this most fundamentally in terms of intention. He said intention, I tell you, is karma. Having intended, one performs an action through body, speech, or mind. So what he's basically saying is that whatever we, whatever we uh, think, we will actually, uh, whatever we think, whatever we do, we will repeat a certain habit. If it's a good habit, we're repeating something positive. If we have an intention that's more negative, we will be strengthening a negative intention. If we grasp, if we're reactive continually, we're actually strengthening that. So the teaching is, this is the, really the core of karma. At every moment, we're strengthening either skillful or unskillful qualities of our being. Every moment. And so we have a choice. And we also have to be able to look carefully at what's there. Uh, the Buddha once said, talking about intentions in terms he used, uh, I think I'll translate his words in the translation are pure import. I think I'll translate these with skillful. He said, this is from the Dhammapada. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with an unskillful mind and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the, uh, the ox that draws the cart. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with a skillful mind and happiness will follow you as your shadow unshakable. So first we want to look carefully at our intentions, and we need a certain amount of mindfulness to look at our intentions. A lot of our intentions are beneath the surface of awareness. So part of intention practice is looking carefully at our intentions, particularly when we're not so conscious. So we can sometimes ask, what my, what's my intention? You know, am I saying this because I want to create a good image with the other person. What's my image? What's my uh, intention in my communication? Am I really wanting to connect or am I strategically trying to get something? When we look honestly at our intentions, we find that a certain amount of intentions are not so skillful. You know, I think of uh, the Tibetan teacher Trungpa Rinpoche once said, Self-knowledge is 70% bad news. Anyone found that? <laughs> Anyone found that a certain amount of self-knowledge is not altogether flattering, right? Right, but we want to know that. We want to know why am I uh, speaking in this way? Why am I acting? What's my intention when I've just had a difficult moment and I find myself suddenly walking towards the refrigerator? Anyone ever done that? <laughs> A few of us. Okay. Uh, and so we want to look at that. We want to notice when we have motivations or intentions that we're not quite aware of. So it's very helpful to keep on asking, 
particularly when we might find ourselves in difficulty or stress, what's my intention right now? We can both notice what's there and come back to deeper intentions. Ultimately, we want to see those intentions so that, so that we can be free, so that we can have clarity about what's going on and we can not be driven by unconscious intentions as much as possible so that we can be able to increasingly respond non-reactively to the present moment. So how do we practice then in summary with intentions? I would say first we want to uh, keep being aware of what the intentions are. That's number one. Be aware of our intentions. A second way to practice, touch one's deeper intentions regularly. We can do this at the end of a sitting, set the intention for the day. We can set an intention in our various activities, set an intention before a conversation. We can, uh, uh, when we're in groups or in activities, we can work with intentions. Again, I was thinking of John Lewis and I remember that often in the uh, early civil rights movement that he was part of in the early 60s, there was tremendous discipline and people made agreements about how they would do demonstrations or in his case, uh, sit-ins and so forth. And I have a list here of some of the agreements that people made. These are really saying, let my deeper intentions come into my activities. Here's one that were the 10 agreements. I'll read some of these from the movement in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, 1963. Remember always that the movement seeks justice and reconciliation, not victory. Meditate daily on the teachings and life of Jesus. It was religiously based. Walk and talk in the manner of love, for God is love. Sacrifice personal wishes in order that all may be free. Observe with both friend and foe the ordinary rule of courtesy. Seek to perform regular service for others and for the world. Refrain from the violence of fist, tongue, or heart. Strive to be in good spiritual and bodily health. So those were some of the intentions, even for a demonstration. And there can be, it's very, very skillful when one is in a group to be guided by uh, group intentions that can be agreed upon. So connecting with the deeper intentions, a second practice. Thirdly, set intentions for specific activities. And you can do this for, you know, particular conversations or, uh, you know, can do this, uh, taking a walk, let me be mindful. You can uh, just see what comes to you, but setting intentions uh, during the day. Again, and that's not meant to be something that's heavy handed, but something that's light, it's just reminding oneself. And you know, it might, for some of us, we might do it a lot, some of us just a few times. So, so that's the, the first, being aware of, of intentions. Second, touch deeper intentions, third, set specific intentions for activities. And then fourth, I would say, particularly work with uh, intentions when they're difficult moments, because that's often when we might go back to our habits. So can I, in difficult moments, come back to my deeper intentions? Can I do that individually? Can I do that with a partner or friend? Can I do that with a group? Can I do that in a workplace? Can I come back in a difficult moment and remember my deeper intentions. Very, very crucial. <clears throat> so that's the first large area that is uh, so fundamental for deepening daily life practice. And the second area, and this may be all that I do further today, is about connecting our formal practice with our informal practice, with having our mindfulness or our metta or our loving kindness be there more in the activities. And again, everything that I'm mentioning here 
makes can really contribute to our uh, make connections between our formal practice, our informal practice, and our work or service. So we have a passage from the Buddha where he says, a practitioner is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning, who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending one's limbs, who acts in full awareness wearing one's robes, carrying the bowl, who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food, and fasting, who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating, who acts in full awareness when waking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. So that covers it, right? So, so a practitioner is one who acts in full awareness in, in all these activities. So how do you do it? Well, intentions are going to help some, but I wanted to bring in another interesting practice that's not so widely known. And this is something that I learned from the uh, Tibetan tradition, from a tradition called the, uh, uh, the Bom. One of the, this is actually the indigenous Tibetan tradition. And this is a practice uh, that are called, uh, or a set of practices called the mixing practices. And this is basically mixing one's mindfulness or awareness with activities. And the basic way it's done is that you set yourself in mindfulness or awareness. And this, was, this was to, can be done with different kinds of awareness. I, I first worked with this where one grounded in what's called awakened awareness, a kind of non-dual awareness. It was part of Dzogchen teachings. In fact, it's... Uh, um, it comes, the, where I learned, it came from a set of teachings called the Atri teachings, translated as uh, Path to Primordial Awareness. And I, I learned this with uh, two teachers, uh, Daniel Brown and Geshe Sonam Gurung. Um, and uh, the teachings actually come from the year 1000. They were developed by a teacher called the Great Hermit, who developed... 80 lessons to move from ordinary mind to full enlightenment. Anyone want to sign up? Okay, you ready? Okay, so this was this was one of them. Okay, this is one. This is actually a more advanced teaching, but um, uh, over the next few centuries, some people thought 80 was too much because they're basically designed to to have these 80 practices, and you do them each for like a month or two. So. It's not like a weekend workshop. Okay. And so uh, in successive generations, they said, this has to be shorter. So like 100 years later, they weren't moving that quickly. 100 years later, it became 30 lessons. And then another 100 years later, it became 15, which is how I studied it. I actually studied it as 14 lessons. This was one of them, okay? And so here, the basic, uh, and I'm adapting this to our mindfulness practice. The basic, basic technique is very simple. You stabilize yourself in mindfulness or awareness and do that for a period of time. And then you deliberately try to keep the mindfulness going with a particular activity. So very, very simple concept, right? So you stabilize and then right there, so you might say, okay, I want to, uh, I'm going to take a walk. Let me meditate for three or four minutes, get a little bit of stability, and then see if I can keep continuity with my walk. You know, I could do the same thing, especially if I have more time, I could do the same thing with any activity. Or I'm going to have a conversation, let me stabilize my attention first, and then bring it out. Now, the way we practice this, there were, um, there were nine different ways we practiced. We would stabilize with, attempt, with awareness, and then we would, the, we would bring it into one of three areas, body, speech, and mind. For each of those, we would also learn to bring the awareness into three different aspects of each of those, three different aspects of body or three different aspects of uh, speech, three di different aspects of mind. 
the three aspects were virtuous, let's say, body activity, neutral body activity, and non-virtuous body activity. So what this meant was, you know, for the virtuous body activity, one might do a prostration. You would develop, you would stabilize an awareness, and then you would bring the awareness into, you know, maybe a, you know, a spiritual prostration. For the neutral activity, you would stabilize an awareness and then bring it into just walking around the room. And then also it was fun, you all, we also learned to stabilize an awareness and then bring awareness into non-virtuous activities. So this meant when we did this practice in retreat, and I think they did this in the monastery, we'd stabilize an awareness and then we'd go around hitting people. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting practice, right? But the key was that you have to be prepared to have awareness even when you're messing up. Okay, And the same thing, this was, this was fun. And there was some humor there. And the same thing with speech. You would, you would stabilize an awareness, develop skillful, kind speech, and then neutral speech, but then also non-virtuous speech. So we were saying, Okay, I want to have awareness when I'm doing trash talking. Okay, so anyway, I'm, I'm not sure if the last part of this would survive moving to the West. But anyway, that's, how, that's the tradition. And they did that. The same thing with uh, thoughts. They would have virtuous thought, you know, thinking beautiful thoughts, neutral, but then also non-virtuous. They want there to be awareness even when you're having negative thoughts. So you can see the point, really. Really, it means have awareness with all aspects of body, speech, and mind. And the key, uh, the key, very simple technique is first stabilize an awareness and have that flow right into activity, so you have continuity. Okay. So let's tr let's try a version of that. Okay. We're gonna we're gonna do. We're going to work with one of them. I'm not going to work with non-virtuous physical activity. Sorry. But we'll work with uh, just neutral activity. So let's meditate for about, a mi about two minutes right now. Go back to meditation. Could be mindfulness or whatever your practice is. For about two minutes. And then I'll, and I'll basically ask you to uh, stand up and walk around for a minute or two. Very, very simple. Okay, so let's sit for about two minutes. And now keeping your awareness, you do this in the way that works for you, but some, for some of us, we might stand up and just walk around for a minute or two, keeping the awareness. And I'll ring a bell when we finish. So how many people were able to keep some awareness as you were also moving? It's not hard, right? That in, you could, you, we could do this, you know, with awareness of the feet or the whole body. 
But the principle, you see that it really goes to what we often say, that mindfulness is not difficult. Remembering to be mindful is quite difficult, right? So you see, just to do something like that a few times during the day will change things. You know, just to come back. Again, it's, it, what's hard is to remember to do that or to not be just caught up in busyness. How many feel like a lot of the day is just being caught up in busyness? Yeah, I think that's true for a lot of us. We can do something very similar with uh, speech. We could ground in awareness. And then, and then speak. So let me invite you now just to come back to awareness. We'll do another exercise. And I'll invite you to imagine yourself speaking to someone. Or if there's someone there, you can speak, okay? So just for about a minute or so. So first, ground in mindfulness. And keeping the continuity of awareness, now just take a minute or so whilst keeping aware of your body being present. Either imagine yourself speaking or actually speak out loud. We have you muted so we won't hear you for about one minute. So we can come back now. And then the third area is working with thoughts. And again, we might, we might do something like this in meditation where we establish mindfulness and then just say, let me invite thoughts to come and we try to be aware as thoughts come. This can be a little more difficult, but let's try it right now. First, just my being mindful in your usual way. Keeping now the continuity of mindfulness or awareness, just invite thoughts to be there just for, we'll just do it for about a minute. See if you can be mindful of the thoughts that come. So again, very, very simple principle that if this resonates with you, you can work with some of these practices, particularly, again, it could be coming back to sh very short periods of awareness and then have a very explicit intention to bring awareness into activities. A few further principles related to this way of practicing. One of them is it's actually quite important when you do this for a while to get a sense of which activities are easier for you to have mindfulness or awareness in. 
and which are harder. And we want to especially work with the ones that are easier. So it might be easier, for example, to do something like what we just did and walk around the room, take a walk, wash the dishes, whereas maybe speaking is harder or being at the computer might be yet still harder. So it's very helpful to have something like a personal ranking of these activities are easier for me to have mindfulness in and these are harder and to have a very personal sense of it and particularly work with the ones that are easier and strengthen them. That will then help us to build up to the more difficult ones. There's also a way that we can see that uh, for a particular activity, we may have different practices that work at different times depending on how aware we are. So for example, I might take, uh, want to take a walk and simply, you know, when I'm not too aware generally or I'm distracted, maybe actually just feeling each step and using label and saying once, you know, step, step, step. That might be a way to actually stay present. And being aware of the whole body would be harder, you know, in that moment. But maybe another time when I'm more aware, I can be aware of the whole body. So it's also helpful to have um, a sense of almost like a, a ranking in terms of what's easier for a given activity. And another way to look at it is also that we can have really, in a sense, uh, different practices for different activities. Maybe, you know, I was actually talking yesterday with a, a student of mine who actually uh, just had a, a baby uh, enter his family, first baby, like about uh, one month ago, right? And he was saying that, oh, there are really different practices that I do. When I uh, take a walk, maybe I'm aware of my whole body. But then when I wash the dishes, I just want to concentrate on my hands. And then when I'm with the baby, it's metta, loving kindness practice, right? So it's very interesting when we're looking to bring our practice to the different activities of the day. We may have different practices. Some of us, that may work better. Some of us, it may work better to have the same practice. So I offer these uh, mixing practices. Uh, again, the, the concept's very simple, but I like the inspiration from this uh, basically thousand-year-old Tibetan tradition that I haven't taught before on Mondays or haven't presented that. I just presented the, the essence of it. So I think I'm going to finish up now uh, with two things. One is to invite everyone again to go inside for a few moments. And ask yourself, what's alive for me in my practice? Maybe something that is happening for you that you want to come back to. Maybe something mentioned today or last week. What's alive for me in my practice right now? And then what's my intention coming out of our session? What's my intention, let's say, for the next few days or the next week? And then thirdly, what are some 
supports that will really help me make this real. Maybe talking to someone else, going to another session, writing the intentions somewhere prominent. What will help me to remember these intentions and make them real? And then I want to close by uh, coming back to remembering uh, Representative John Lewis and just give a short passage from him uh, talking. And this is really about the centrality of intentions and being guided by deeper intentions. And he expresses this in terms of his action always being guided by love. So he talks about love and action. It's a way of manifesting a deeper intention. So this is right at the center of his work and that of many others. So John Lewis, when we were sitting in, it was love and action. When we went on the freedom ride, it was love and action. The march from Selma to Montgomery was love in action. We do it not simply because it's the right thing to do, but it's love in action. That we love our country. We love a democratic society. And so we have to move our feet. So we have a little bit of time for uh, any uh, questions, any uh, could be those of us who may have uh, been here in the previous weeks, if there's something that you found, uh, came to an insight from the last week or two, you might want to share that, what was helpful for you in deepening daily life practice at this time. So any sharing, any question could be done either by the raised hand function uh, or by um, the chat function. And uh, Christina, could you help? Happy to. Devorah, would you like to speak? Oh, sure. Um. Ah, fuck. I think that was... I think that was a mistake. I was raising my hand to something Donald said earlier, but thank you. Okay. Okay. I do have uh, a question. Okay. That came in through the chat. Um... Why do you use the word intention for what is unconscious? Seems like intention is deliberate. Mm, Yeah, great question. Um, Yeah, I think that um, uh, yeah, it's it's um, I think how what word we use, I, I think I'm okay with using other words, but we're, what we're trying to get at is what we might call unconscious motivation. Sometimes we use intention and motivation interchangeably, but we, we do talk about unconscious motivation. So my example, like how do we, uh, how do we see uh, that I was engaged in this conversation in this group, but I, but kind of what was driving me was trying to look good or trying to create a certain image. So I was using the word intention as a way to get to that and to try to bring intentions which were 
where we're actually driving my behavior, I want to um, make them more conscious. So again, if we use if we use the word motivation, I'm okay with that. But I think it's uh, the idea is that our actions and our behavior are being guided by certain, you know, motivation or intentions moment to moment, and it's very helpful to know what they are. That and and that a lot of our more unskillful motivations and some of our skillful motivations may not be so conscious. So. That's the underlying practice point. Uh, and uh, again, I, I'm okay if we want to give definitions so that we talk about intention as more conscious, but then we would probably talk about motivation and maybe similar issues come up there. So whoever asked the question, what uh, I want to, any response or? But it's a, it's a good question. But what we're getting at is, is the fact that we're often motivated and do things and seem and act as if we have intentions, but we're half conscious or not at all conscious of what that was about until later sometimes. That's what we're really getting at, that, you know, they're moment to moment. Our, our uh, moment to moment things are happening and we're being driven in certain directions. Thanks. I have another question came through the chat. When we're doing our mindful meditation and have thoughts which predominate, predominate, what are the techniques for exploring those thoughts before returning to the to our primary object? Yeah, we want to uh, see first of all what the level of mindfulness is. We want to be able to. Uh, have enough mindfulness so that we can uh, not be simply dominated by the thoughts and lost in them. So a good first question is, am I lost in the thoughts? If we have some ability to not be fully lost, um, then it can be very helpful, particularly with thoughts, for example, that might be repetitive, judgmental thoughts, where we have a narrative, oh, this is going to happen, or oh, that person was so bad, or whatever. When we have repetitive thoughts like that, it can be very, very helpful to do what we call investigation. Some of you know the RAIN method, which a lot of teachers work with. Recognize what's happening, recognize the thought, acknowledge that the thought's there. And then the I stands for inquiry or investigation. So this can be where we uh, actually say, let me see what's happening in the body. And we might go to the body for a period of time. You know, I'm really judgmental about what happened yesterday at the meeting. Okay. And I, um, and I can go to my body and I notice, oh, there's a, you know, there's a lot of agitation or movement there. And we just hang out with that for a period of time. We can also similarly ask, what's the emotion? What's going on? And I can notice, oh, there's some anger. Let me just stay with that. Oh, there's some sadness. One thing that's important when we're investigating thoughts is that when we stay with the experience, the experience often can change. So I may stay with anger and it may shift into sadness. Right? So that quality of investigation is very, very helpful. You know, at a, another level, we can simply, you know, we want first to name what the thought is. And we can, you know, after a while, see how uh, common the thoughts are. So that's a, that's, a, that's a starting place for working skillfully with thoughts. We have another question on the chat. Okay. My unconscious intention to make myself feel better shows up when I grab for something to eat without awareness. The intention is clear to me, but at the moment I act, the intention is not conscious. Yeah. It doesn't feel the same as motivation to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, good. Thank you for kind of helping to see some of the distinctions here. Again, the main thing we want to look for is just to see if I can notice what's going on as soon as possible. So if I can notice 
like I say, that example, I find myself, you know, a little bit in a trance walking towards the refrigerator. If I've looked at that some, I can use that as a cue and just stop and say, what's going on? You know, or what's happening? And so often asking what's happening can be the starting point for actually um, intervening and not following through on the action if I don't think it's skillful. So that can be, um, you know, that can be, uh, again, uh, you, you know, that can be a way of approaching it. We can also look more deeply, and this may get at some of the distinction between intention and motivation. And again, there are different words that we can use as well. You know, what's my underlying need, for example, is a, another way of framing it, or what matters for me. Uh, when I, let's say I'm on the way to the refrigerator and I stop and I look into what's happening in my experience, I might notice, oh, I'm upset by that conversation. I could really use a kind of soothing. And I have a habit of using food for soothing, right? Is there another way I can find, I can meet that need? Is there another more skillful way that I can meet that need? Maybe I'll call up a close friend and we can talk and I can receive some empathy. Right? So that would be an example. But the key is that we want to see what's happening. And so maybe that word motivation, maybe that, that has some relationship to what I was calling a deeper need or sort of something genuine, right? And you know, in some of you know, in the discipline of nonviolent communication, the language is used of needs, and those are distinguished from strategies. So in this instance, my deeper authentic need would be for some soothing or some, you know, some um, <clears throat> finding of balance after a difficult conversation. And my strategy to do that would be to eat a lot of comfort food, let's say. The need is always going to be genuine. The strategy may be skillful or unskillful, and that's what's key. So maybe maybe that uh, maybe that distinction between intention and motivation is has some similarities to the distinction between the genuine underlying need and the uh, and the strategy. The strategy can be very very unskillful. You know, uh, someone who is an alcoholic has a genuine need for peace but the strategy may be unskillful. Okay. So again, if the person who asked that wants to be in further dialogue, that would be fine. <laughs> do we have time for one more? We do, yeah. All right. How can you think and be mindful of thoughts at the same time? How can one think and be mindful of thoughts at the same time? With training. <laughs> but I think the question really suggests that it's not easy, right? Uh, and that often thoughts seem to take the uh, whole of our attention. One thing that one can do with some training, and, and even the exercise that we just did a little while ago, is one can find that it's actually possible to have awareness and thinking going on at the same time. Again, this is not a beginning capacity, but when the mindfulness is strong, sometimes we can find, and sometimes we can find this when we have a deeper sitting, and you can have awareness, and you can just notice a thought go through, more like a cloud going through the mind. So one image we sometimes have, and one way we sometimes work with guided meditations, is imagine your mind is like a sky. You can even do that right now. Imagine your mind is like a sky. Your, your awareness is like a sky. And there are different things happening in it there. Maybe you notice, oh, I notice my hands or I notice my feet, just like little blips going through the sky. And maybe you, you have awareness. You have some awareness of your body, and you can have awareness of your body at the same time that you hear my thoughts. How many people are able to do that? You can have some awareness of your body 
at the same time that you're on the level of thought, understanding thoughts. So that shows that we can have awareness and some thoughts at the same time. It's harder when we're thinking the thoughts. It's easier when we're just attending to others' thoughts. But we can at first, I think, experience this at the level of uh, meditation. A lot of what we can learn, very similar to what we did with the mixing practices, we first explore something in meditation. And we first explore it where the meditation is deeper. Then gradually, and here we would have, when, the, when we're really pretty quiet, and let's say we're with the breath a lot, sometimes we'll notice a thought and we'll notice, oh, I have, I noticed that thought kind of, but I also had some awareness of the thought occurring. And that's an experience we can have. We gradually bring that out into more and more of the meditation. And then we can also start to bring it out into our ordinary experience. A very key aspect that supports being aware, mindful of thoughts, is to imagine that the thoughts are almost like a stream that's happening right in front of us. That they're, they're just the thoughts are just happening by themselves. And we, as it were, are, are less identified with the thoughts. So the thoughts are just happening and I'm just sitting watching the thoughts. How many can relate to that, sometimes experience something like that? Yeah, so that's, that's how we would get at it, but it's a gradual thing. First, strengthen mindfulness, strengthen our awareness, then start to look when we're pretty settled at how you can be aware and still have thoughts thinking themselves at the same time. Bring that into more of the meditation and then see if you can start to bring it into daily life. So the key is really seeing the thoughts as kind of happening on their own. Uh, Mark Epstein, who's a, a writer on uh, Buddhist themes, wrote actually a book called Thoughts Without a Thinker. That's getting at it some, that eventually we see thoughts as just happening by themselves, you know, and we can actually have awareness around them. Okay, thanks for the and very good questions today. Thank you. And we'll think about the, the terms. Very people were really looking at the, what, what's the best language to describe some of the territory we're exploring? Intention, motivation, maybe needs, uh, strategies, right? That these are all different words. But the key is that we're moving from intentions or behavior or strategies that are less skillful to ones that are more skillful. That, that's, that's at the heart of it. So always remember when we're looking at the terms that they all have to serve the core of our practice, which is to uh, become more skillful moment to moment. And so let's close with two things. First, just being aware again of our intentions Maybe something was helpful or inspiring from today or previous weeks or something that simply occurred in the session. What's my intention? As I move forward into my day, maybe bringing some more awareness into my daily life, deepening my practice in the way that resonates for you. What's my intention? And then we close with the dedication of merit, a traditional practice. May our time together be of benefit to us, be a benefit to those in our circles, people close to us, and ultimately be of benefit beyond those circles to all beings. May our practice, may our time together be a benefit to all beings, always remembering that we are part of all beings. So thanks again, everyone.
and we can unmute everyone or unmute yourself and we can say goodbye. You're all unmuted. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks everyone. Good to see, good to see people and enjoy Heidi next time and you can say anything you want as long as it's skillful. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay. If you want to unmute and say something, that's fine. Okay. Bye-bye. I think uh, people aren't able to unmute, Christine. I don't know if they're... I just changed it. Sorry, folks. That was my bad. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great session. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was beautiful. Enjoy. Enjoy practice. Till next time. Much gratitude. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Very beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.